Good morning. If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And uh, while you are turning there, for the men in particular, I just want to draw your attention to this flyer. It's on some of your chairs. There's also some of them at the back. But uh, this is just a little promo for our men's retreat that is coming up in February, February 4th through 6th. It's for college and adult men. And I'd encourage you to consider going. If you're a guy that would like to kind of plug into the church as a whole, meet some of the adult men, learn more information about perhaps things like mentorship, discipleship, uh, as a guy, and what does that look like for you maybe to be mentored or discipled by another guy in the congregation, or if you're just wanting to come and meet some other students and other men, I encourage you guys to come out. The speaker is a guy named Steve Farrar, um, who is uh, one of the kind of more well-known speakers, actually, for men's retreats. He's uh, written a couple of really popular books on the subject of discipleship for men, but also uh, was involved with what used to be the Promise Keepers seminars years and years ago. And so uh, he is going to be our speaker February 4th through 6th, and uh, it's $80, and uh, that covers all your meals, that covers lodging, that covers the speaker activities at Frontier Camp, all that kind of stuff. So it's really a steal for what you are getting. So I'd encourage you guys to check that out. You can register online. All right, Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Uh, We have a long passage this morning, but I'm going to go ahead and read all of it because I want us to have a chance to kind of absorb it before I pray. I'm going to start in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say, that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. 
This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we're grateful for your word. And uh, we are grateful for the name of Jesus about which we just sang. That here at this time of year, particularly, we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. And we remember his death and resurrection for us. That we don't approach you on the basis of anything we do, any goodness in us, not on the basis of our own prayers or our own sacrifices or our own offerings, but only on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. Father, as we study your word, we pray give us understanding to understand those things that might be hard for us to grasp. I pray give us focus in our minds as uh, we are approaching the end of a semester. I pray give us focus. Allow us to understand what you would have to say. Lord, allow us to believe it and then allow us through your spirit to obey. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are a fan of the Olympics or maybe you ran track and field or anything like that in high school, you will know that in the 1960s, there was a revolution in the way that uh, athletes approached the high jump. Some of you know that prior to that time, an athlete would run toward the bar and he would lift his center of gravity and he would try to uh, essentially scissor kick his way over the bar. He would straddle the bar, one leg going over and then the other leg following, kind of like this. All right, and usually the head was facing toward the ground and you would try to get your center of gravity over the bar and land on your feet. And part of that was because they didn't have the soft landing pads that they tend to have now. So you didn't want to land on your head on the concrete. But part of that was just because this is the way they had always done it. Well, uh, in the mid to late 1960s, there was a change in the way that the high jump is approached. There was a guy by the name of Dick Fosbury who, uh, as a college athlete, wasn't able to effectively get much height using this method. And so he started trying a different method where he would run toward the bar and he would turn at the last minute and jump up and basically he could keep his center of gravity low and he could slide over the bar like this, all right, head first going back. And uh, he began to do this method all through college. And uh, at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, uh, he was doing this method. Now, first, people laughed at it. It looked a little silly. They called it the Fosbury flop. And uh, he managed, though, at the 1968 Olympics to break the Olympic record, and he won a gold medal. Uh, Now, when you watch the Olympics today, everybody does it like this. You've probably never seen a high jumper try to scissor kick or straddle their way over the bar, maybe once or twice, but at an Olympic level, everybody does it like this because he found a demonstrably better way to approach the high jump. It gives you more height. It gives you a a superior sense of balance and gravity. And so from that point on in the high jump, it's like there's a before and after. There's a before Fosbury and there's an after Fosbury. It's a revolution in the way people approach the high jump. And every so often in a sport or in other fields, there's a revolution like that. Uh, Medicine is another good example. Uh, If you go back 150 years, people didn't treat infections the same way they did now. They might give you some arsenic or mercury, or leeches, or something along those lines, right? Now they use antibiotics, right? And we're grateful for that, uh, that we don't go to the hospital and they don't reach into a little bucket, right, and pull out the leeches, stick them on. That's a revolution in medicine. And every so often in a field, you have a revolution that changes the way you think about that field. 
As we look at the book of Hebrews, uh, what we're looking at, although this is a long passage and a complicated passage, the fundamental idea that the author is trying to communicate to us is that in Jesus Christ, there was a revolution in the way that we approach God. That there's before Jesus and there's after Jesus. That before Jesus, the way that men approached God and women approached God was through a system of rituals and laws and sacrifices. Because God is holy and we're not. Because we are sinful and we can't approach him. And so when we sin... In the Old Testament, you look at the Old Testament, when a person sins, they have to go to a priest and bring a sacrifice and the priest sacrifices an animal so that the person is temporarily atoned. That sin is covered over and God does not demonstrate his wrath immediately. And if I wanted to worship God, if I wanted to approach God, the only way in the Old Testament was really through this this system of law. The only way to experience a relationship with God was through the system. But then Jesus comes along and the the argument that our author has really been making from the beginning of the book is that in Jesus Christ, there is really a revolution in the way we approach God because Jesus, as the perfect son of God, also becomes a perfect sacrifice on our behalf, an eternal sacrifice, an enduring sacrifice, one that no longer requires us now to go and sacrifice goats and lambs and sheep and birds, so that we can avoid the wrath of God. It said Jesus, as an eternal sacrifice, once and for all, makes the payment for us. And then he serves as an eternal priest, because he is perfectly qualified to approach God, where you and I are not, and the priests of the Old Testament are not. And if you followed us through Hebrews, that's a lot of what we've been talking about through the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus Christ initiates this revolution in the way we approach God. Well, our author is addressing a group of people who are really struggling with that concept, because if you think about it from their perspective, they're used to going to the temple. They're used to approaching God through the law. And so the law, in a sense, uh, didn't feel to them like a cumbersome set of regulations all the time. Sometimes it felt like a comforting set of rituals that they would use to get to God. Just as it's often comfortable for you to come in here on Sunday morning and you know the songs and you know what we're going to talk about maybe from week to week and you're used to a sermon and you're used to sitting in rows like this. They were used to approaching God at the temple. And so now when Jesus comes and the message is, no, you don't approach God at the temple through these sacrifices anymore. They struggle with that, especially in the midst of persecution where people are saying, no, go back to the old way. It really is better. The author is going to say, no, there is no system, there is no ritual, there is no sacrifice that can bring you to God apart from Jesus Christ. Again, as we've talked through Hebrews, the the challenge has been that most of us, we are not tempted to approach God through the law. We don't have goats and sheep and those sort of things in here this morning. Most of us, right? And so we are not tempted to approach God that way, but we are often, I think, under the impression that somehow we can earn God's favor or we can merit God's blessing by rituals or by approaching him through other people. Maybe it is that on some level you believe that by coming here to church, this is the place where you receive your dose of spirituality for the week. Or maybe it's a breakaway on Tuesday night. And so you you think, you know, the worship pastor and the person speaking is the one who mediates between you and God. 
And so you come in once a week and you receive your dose of God, but then you go through the week and you just wait for the next one. Maybe it is even that you believe that you can merit God's favor through uh, reading the Bible or through a certain type of prayer or through going to a Bible study. And so you've developed a certain set of rituals that you follow. And what the author would say to you as we walk through Hebrews is this. No, it's only through Jesus that we have the blessing of God. It's only through Jesus that we have a relationship with God. And all of these other things that we do are an outflowing of the fact that Jesus has already forgiven us. God already accepts us in Jesus Christ. And so now I can approach him not to earn his favor, but because I have it in Jesus Christ. Some of us may be sitting here even and you are afraid that God's going to reject you because of a sin you've committed, because of uh, some imperfection in your life. So you feel like you've got to go through some sort of ritual to earn his favor. Again, what Hebrews tells us is no, Jesus Christ is the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, has already earned God's favor on our behalf. And so we have it. And what what we're going to see in Hebrews is the author is going to do something interesting. He's going to compare Jesus to a guy named Melchizedek. And most of us are not super familiar with Melchizedek. He's not a guy that we uh, read about a lot. We don't preach a lot of sermons about Melchizedek, except when we're preaching from Hebrews. And so you may not be real familiar with him, but what he's going to do is he's going to say that Melchizedek is what's called a type or a foreshadowing of a new pattern of priesthood that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so he points us first to Melchizedek and then he builds a case that there is a different type of mediation between man and God than was found in the Old Testament law. Melchizedek is an example of that and Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So let's walk through Hebrews chapter seven. First, we're gonna look at this mysterious Melchizedek. He's been hinting at Melchizedek for a few uh, chapters now. So we're finally gonna dig in. Starting again, chapter seven, verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, let me stop there. Here's what he's saying. Melchizedek shows up in the Old Testament is kind of a mysterious shadowy figure. And what he does is Abraham, the background is that Abraham has just finished a major battle where he has fought five kings. He's taken 300 men, he's fought five kings and he defeated these five kings. One of whom had stolen, had kidnapped his nephew Lot. Abraham wins this battle and as he's coming back to his home, out walks this guy named Melchizedek, whose name literally means king of righteousness in Hebrew. Melchizedek walks out. It says he was the king of Salem, which is probably nearby where Jerusalem is now. And he walks out and he blesses Abraham. And then Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe, much like people used to tithe the priest. And then Melchizedek disappears. We never hear from him again. Right, so he walks out, he performs a function, and then he disappears. It reminds me of uh, something that happened to me when I was a child. One of my responsibilities as a kid was to walk our little dog. Right, we had this little brown, fluffy dog. All right, and uh, he was not any breed. Uh, he was 
extremely unintelligent. Uh, If he got out in the front yard, he did not know where he was. Uh, But my job was I would take him on a leash, and that was one of my chores. I would walk this little dog around the block. And uh, there was a point on our walk where every week there would be this big, like, Doberman that was down the street, and it would see my dog and begin to bark at my dog. And my dog, not being fully aware of how small he was and uh, how weak he was, would begin to bark back and act like he was going to take him. Uh, Well, a few times, this big dog actually leaped its fence and came out, came after my dog. Now, I was about eight years old, so there wasn't a whole lot I could do except sit there and watch my dog just get shredded, all right? And so this poor little uh, fluff ball was just sitting there while this Doberman is just taking him to town, and uh, I could do nothing. But what's amazing was every time it happened, which it only happened a few times, but every time it happened, there was this guy that would ride by on his bicycle, all right, this older man, and he would ride by, and he would look down, and he would see what was happening. He'd hop off his bike. He would separate the dogs. He'd take the big dog, stick it back in the fence, look at me and go, are you okay? And I'd go, yeah. And then he'd hop on his bike, and he'd ride away. All right, now, I, I'm not making this up. I never saw the guy except when my dog was in trouble. And every time my dog was in trouble, this guy would show up. And I started to think, my, my dog has an angel, right? My dog has a guardian angel. He shows up, he performs a function, and then he disappears into nowhere. All right, that's what we see with Melchizedek in the Old Testament. All right, he shows up out of nowhere. He blesses Abraham. Abraham pays him a tithe after this battle, and then he disappears. We don't know who he is. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know when he died. We know nothing else about his life. And so our author here in Hebrews uses Melchizedek to to say something very significant, and that is that a priest does not have to be a person who's descended from Levi. Levi was Abraham's great-grandson. He was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And if you remember, of the 12 tribes of Jacob, of Israel, Levi was the priestly tribe. You couldn't be a priest unless you were descended from Levi. But the author says, no, you've got Melchizedek. Melchizedek wasn't descended from Levi, and he shows up, he performs a priestly function, and then he disappears. There's a few things about Melchizedek that are significant. One, he's both a priest and a king. All right, under the Old Testament system of law, that was impossible. Kings came from a different line than priests. Kings were typically of the line of Judah most of the time, which is the line that Jesus is from. Priests were of the line of Levi. The two were separate in their function. And in fact, if you were a king and you walked into the temple and you tried to be the priest, all right, the one king who tried that, Uzziah, ended up with leprosy all over his face. And the reason is because that was a big no-no. The king and the priest were separate. The king ruled the people, but the priest was holy and mediated between the people and God. But here you have Melchizedek, who's both. He's a king and a priest, and his name means king of righteousness. He served as a vessel of righteousness between God and the people. That's what a priest does, right? The people are not righteous, so the, the priest makes sacrifices to atone for the people so they can stand before God and claim righteousness. It also says uh, king of Salem. Salem uh, translated essentially means peace. He's also the king of peace. He's the one who provides peace between the people and God. And yet he's also a king. And so the, the argument is that it's possible for a priest to also be a king and a king to also be the priest. And that's going to be a foreshadowing in a few, few verses of Jesus himself. All right, so Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. Secondly, there's no genealogy recorded of Melchizedek. We don't know, again, his parents. We don't know anything about him. Verse 6 
says that he is uh, not descended from Levi, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham. In other words, he's not of the priestly line, but he serves a priestly function. All right now, you may read that and you think, well, when it says he has no father, no mother, no genealogy, that's really not strictly true, right? We assume that Melchizedek was a normal person and he had a father and a mother. He had a background. But what our author is doing is he's using an argument to say, essentially, Melchizedek's genealogy is not of Levi, and the author of Genesis never tells us Melchizedek's genealogy. So he's using what we call an argument from silence. And the silence here is significant. What it doesn't say about Melchizedek is significant. And the reason is because if you were a priest in the Old Testament, you had to verify your genealogy. When the Jews came back from exile, after they'd been exiled in Babylon, they all had to present, those who were priests, had to present certificates demonstrating that they were descended from Levi. They had to verify their genealogy. Melchizedek doesn't do that. We don't know who his father and mother are. What that tells us is that priesthood doesn't only come through Levi. Priesthood is bestowed on a person by God. It's an argument from silence. Think about it this way. Uh, Guys, if you were to go on a date this next Friday... And you have a nice time, you finish the date and you look at your date and you say, I had a really great time. I would like to do that again. And she looks at you and says nothing, right? It says, that's very sweet, right? And goes into her apartment, right? Now, she hasn't expressly said she won't go out with you again, but you're probably going to assume from the silence that something not good is happening, Right? that the reality is what she's not saying might be more significant than what she is saying. All right, that's the argument from silence here. Our author is going back and he's saying, we don't know Melchizedek's genealogy. And it's not literally that he doesn't have parents. It's that the fact that he doesn't tell us his parents is very significant because you couldn't be a priest under the Old Testament law unless you had the right parents. And yet Melchizedek doesn't. And the implication is, again, priesthood comes from God, not from lineage. So he has no genealogy. And then thirdly, verses 4 to 10 say he's superior to both Abraham and Levi. Let's read again verses 4 to 10. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a command in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, the argument is this, that in the Old Testament, people would pay tithes to the the temple for the upkeep of the temple and also to support the priests so they could live. All right, Abraham is the father of the nation and his great-grandson is Levi, the father of all the priests. People usually paid tithes to the Levitical line. But what we see here is Abraham, the father of all those people, paying a tithe to this Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham from the other end. In other words, usually it's a superior, a king or a priest or a leader who blesses you because they have a blessing that you need. In the Old Testament, a father would bless his sons. A priest would bless the people. Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abraham. And the idea is Melchizedek, 
Hebrews is saying, is actually superior to Abraham in every way, from every angle. Melchizedek is superior to the father of the Jewish nation, and he's superior even to Levi, the father of the priestly line. And it says, in a way, Levi paid tithes through Abraham because the idea is Abraham was the, the grandfather, great-grandfather of Levi. Right, so in every way, this Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, superior to Levi. Right, I saw a movie a few years back in which the main character is reminiscing about his life. And as he thinks about his life, he doesn't remember any failures. All he remembers are the amazing successes he had. Uh, he won the football championship. He won the basketball championship. He won the science fair. He was the hero firefighter. And all of these wonderful things happened in his life. And as he remembers back on his life, uh, in all of the scenes where they show these great things happening, there's this other guy that's like his rival in the town, his rival for his romantic interest, his rival for everything he's trying to achieve. And every time this guy remembers his life, he remembers winning and the other guy losing. So when he wins the football championship, other guy is sitting on the bench. When he's the hero firefighter, other guy is sitting in the truck. He wins the science fair, other guy gets honorable mention. And the, the idea is, is he remembers his life in every way, intellectually, athletically, uh, in terms of courage, he's better than this other guy. That's what Hebrews is arguing. Melchizedek is better than Abraham. He's better than Levi. He's a better priest because God appointed him as priest so that he can mediate between God and the people. And so there's a system of priesthood that is better than the Old Testament law. That's all he's arguing here with Melchizedek. There's a system of priesthood where a person can approach God, not through sacrifices, rituals, works of the law, but instead because God has designated a person to be that mediator. So what he's going to do next then is he's going to make an argument about Jesus based on Melchizedek. And again, he's going to say Melchizedek is what we call a type of Jesus Christ. He's a foreshadowing, the pattern of what we're going to see in Jesus Christ. And he's going to move on to what we're going to call the matchless Jesus. In other words, we've got this mysterious Melchizedek. And what he says is this, if Melchizedek is great, how much greater must be Jesus It's what we call a lesser to greater argument. Again, think about it this way. If you went to a concert, a friend invites you to a concert and you say, well, who are we going to see? They say, well, I'm not sure, but I know that the opening act is U2. One of the the top selling rock bands of all time. They're opening and you go, wow, if they are opening, then the main event must be amazing. It's not Justin Bieber, right? It's somebody much, much better, right? You know that the main act must be awesome. That's the argument. If they're opening, if Melchizedek is opening, how much greater must Jesus be? If you go to a speech and the president of the United States is introducing the speaker, you're going to go, wow, who's the speaker? That's a lesser to greater argument. If Melchizedek was this great, that he's greater than Abraham, he's greater than Levi, how much better is the son of God crucified and risen? How much more able is he to provide access for us to God because of what he has done. And how much more can we trust him rather than the things we do for eternal life, for approval from God? How much more can we place our faith in him rather than all these other systems? And here's what he says about Jesus. First of all, Jesus transcends the law. Look at verses 11 through 14. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law, 
what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. In other words, the law itself had to be changed and almost overturned if we find Jesus descended from a different tribe as an eternal and superior priest. And and again, Hebrews is arguing because we saw that in Melchizedek, we see that, we know we can see that in Jesus. And what that means is it's not just the priesthood that changed, it's the law itself that's been overturned by Jesus Christ. Again, and just another illustration, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is just finishing his term as the governor of California. If you read interviews, he's hinted at the fact that he'd like to be president, right? But the problem is what? He wasn't born in the United States, and the Constitution says you have to be, right? Flash forward 10, 20 years, if he is our president, you know what? The Constitution has changed. The law has changed. And that's what he's arguing about Jesus. If Jesus is the priest who is eternally superior to the law, who eternally mediates between us and God, what that means is that the whole system of the law had to change. And they're no longer bound by the regulations and the rituals of the Old Testament law, but instead they approach God through Jesus Christ. The law was never able to provide perfection. The law was never able to fully provide atonement for sin. Again, because you had to keep making sacrifices. Yet in Jesus Christ, we have a perfect and eternal hope. And that's really where he goes in 15 to 22. That in Jesus, we have an eternal hope that the law could never give. This becomes even more evident. Verse 15, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus offers an eternal hope and God made an oath to him. That's a quote from Psalm 110 verse four, that God has promised him, you're a priest forever. And he sealed it with an oath. And how did he prove that he'll fulfill that oath? He raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus died as a sacrifice on our behalf. And then God raised him from the dead to say, he is now eternally the one who grants access to me. So you want to know God, you look at Jesus Christ. Forever and ever and ever. It's through him that you have a relationship with God. And he's able to offer an eternal hope the law could never offer. And that's why it says he's the guarantor that has the idea in the original language of being the promise keeper. He's the security of a better covenant. And in chapter 8, he's going to go into this idea of a better covenant. It's not just the priesthood that changed. It's the whole nature of how we relate with God. A covenant is simply an agreement between two parties. It says Jesus guarantees we have a better way of approaching God. Unfettered access to God. 
There's only one way to approach him, and that is by relying upon what Jesus has done, right? It may be that you're here, and as you go into Christmas, like Jamie said earlier, you sing the songs, and they sound like Jingle Bells or Frosty the Snowman or whatever it is to you, and you've never really processed what they're saying. And most of what the Christmas songs are saying is this, is that the very Son of God became a man, and he lived a perfect life, And he died on a cross and he rose again. Why? So that you can approach God. And if you haven't believed that, that's the message of Hebrews for you is that only through Jesus Christ can you have eternal life. But even for those who have believed that, I think sometimes we forget that. And so we get into the midst of our walk with God and we're striving and we're working and we're trying to do something that will grant us favor before God. We create a system of rituals. Uh, Maybe we're a leader in an organization Maybe it is through having the right number of quiet times, the right amount of time. Maybe it is through how often we sit in this room or some other room and we create a system of rituals, all of which might be good things, but we begin to believe that it's in those things and what I do that God approves of me. Instead of looking to Jesus Christ and we say, no, it's in Jesus Christ that God approves of me. And community is important because it reminds me of the truth. Community is important because it helps me use my gifts and serve and helps me to help the body of Christ and them to help me. But community and preaching and worship corporately and all these things does not grant you access to God. What grants you access to God is Jesus Christ. And so when we come before God and we approach him, we can approach him directly. Not through another party. Not mediated through some system but through Jesus Christ. I wonder if you you and I really have allowed that to sink in and hit home in our hearts as we walk into Christmas. Are you striving to find approval from God still in the stuff you do and believing that if you slip or you fall, you've lost God's acceptance and you have to do more and more and more. And what the scripture says is, no, what you need to do is you come back to Jesus Christ You say, Jesus, restore my fellowship, my relationship with God. Jesus, I trust that you have forgiven me on the basis of your death and resurrection. And now empower me through your spirit to do your will. We always go back to Jesus. Instead of saying, I just got to pray harder. I got to work harder. I got to think about this harder. Got to go to church more. No, we go back to Jesus Christ. That's the message of Hebrews 7. Jesus has revolutionized the way we approach God. It will never again be the same. Would you guys pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. But Lord, we just confess, and, and I do too, that often I believe that there's something I can do that's going to cause you to love me a little more, approve of me a little more, or there's things I can do that, that are going to cause you to reject me. Father, we want to be holy. We want to serve you because you have forgiven us, because Jesus Christ has made us new and inaugurated a new way to know you. Lord, remove from our minds and hearts the lie that we can earn your favor or that another person besides Jesus can be our mediator, our priest. Let us look forever to Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the message of Christmas that your son came to earth showed us who you are and was killed 
so that we could have life. Let us never let go of that. Never stop remembering that. And live in light of it. Father, we thank you again for this time. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We'll see you all next week.